Root Simple Podcast. Low tech, home tech. Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. In episode 29, Kelly and I discuss toasters. Kelly takes a pledge, and we compost Christmas. Hey, hey Eric. Hey, Kelly. How are you? Good. Stepping on each other there. How are you doing over there across the table? I'm doing good. We're recording <laughs> in the evening here. It's strange. It's an evening podcast. It's kind of more sophisticated than our daytime podcasts. Last time we did that, there was wine and cocktails involved. and We that talked about true. bicycles. That was with Colin. That was a good one. That was a good one. This week, we're alone. We have no guests this week. We have a couple of guests lined up after the holiday season. But for now, it's us. It's us. So this week, our toaster keeled over and died. It's a toaster we had for a very long time. But, you know, toasters, if you think about it, they should just be immortal because they're so simple. They're deceptively simple, though. I tried to fix this one, so I disassembled it to figure out what the problem was. And I think it was a very common problem. What happened was a little piece of toast broke the what's called the nichrome wire, which is the heating element. Uh, and if that happens, what, what happens is uh, one side will still work and the other doesn't. And I found the break in the wire. However, it was way, way down deep in the toaster and very difficult to fix. Because the toaster doesn't come apart? It doesn't come apart very easily. I like things that come apart easily. I always talk about the phone that we have, the very old Western Electric 500 phone, which was actually made to be repaired by the phone company. And when you take that apart, all the parts come apart with a screwdriver, and the little sub-assemblies come apart independently, and you can take the whole thing apart. And actually, the wiring diagram is within the machine itself. And also, what's cool is when the little screws on the bottom of the phone don't actually fall out. They stay in there because the phone company obviously didn't want to have lots of missing screws that they would have to replace. So that's really cool the toaster, on the other hand, was obviously made not to be fixed. It was very difficult to take apart. I did successfully take it apart. However, bridging that wire would have required me to buy some special tools in order to fix it and a little kind of thing that bridges that gap, which then would have been the price of a new toaster. So obviously it wasn't worth mm -hmm. it. And what was interesting is when I took it apart, I thought instantly of designer Thomas Thwaites' TED Talk, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, he's a kind of, it's an art project. Where it's a very he, funny art very project. Very funny. He decided he would build a toaster from scratch by going out and mining all the components. Like mining and manufacturing, whatever he needed to make, he had to make it from absolute scratch. He had to find copper for the wires. He had to, he had to I think he was trying to make that nichrome, the nickel chromium wire too for the heating element. And the funniest part is he tries to make a plastic case for it using <laughs> hand tools and 
The it final product yeah, the is final really product funny looks looking. really sad. <laughs> and very, it worked his talk for, about it is hysterical, so definitely take a listen to that if you can. It worked for five seconds, and then it <laughs> stopped working. It's very, very, very funny. You but, know what else this... Oh, I don't mean to no, go ahead. you. But you know, this also reminds me of the Maker Manifesto. Well, exactly. Yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes, too. Yeah, so, I mean, things should be made to be repaired, period. And that's, that's I think, the first tenet of the Maker Manifesto. But we'll, we'll link to that. If you haven't seen that, take a look. But there's a fundamental flaw in the toaster, the electric toaster design, which is that if a piece of toast gets sort of misplaced in a the... A crumb, sort of? Yeah, a cr- piece of the crumb. Well, you know, toast crumbles, so that's sort of a design flaw. Exactly. It crumbles, and then the heating elements are exposed, as they have to be, to the the bread. And so, obviously, this, this problem happens a lot. Now, you could design the toaster in such a way that there was extra of that wire within the device that you could bridge the gap with. You actually can just twist the two ends together to get it to work again. But that wasn't the case in this toaster. You could make it so it could be fixed. But it's going to be a, a toaster problem that's going to happen just inevitably, particularly if you if you bake a bread that has a hard crust. That might be another issue. If you have the kind of soft Wonder Bread stuff with no crust, yeah, this that would, would be never less, hurt the less likely yeah, that this would happen. Yes, yeah, so we have a steely hard sourdough crusts. That just slice through elements like nothing. So I tried hard, and like I said, I found the the problem, but was unable to fix it. You know, something should be said about the modern toaster also has a circuitry in it too. So it's it's actually not as simple a device as you might think. That made me think, being given that our our interest in appropriate technology on our blog and our books, uh, I thought, well, what's the appropriate technology toaster? And I remembered the kind of pyramidal-shaped stovetop toasters that I've seen in illustrations and maybe at antique stores that date to the early 20th century when our house was built. And I thought, well, could we find one of those and and try one of those out? Uh, And I kind of threw it open to our readers to see if if they had any experience with non-electric toasters. And we got quite a few really good suggestions the the toaster that I was thinking about was a pyramidal shaped toaster. It sits on the burner, so people can imagine it. It looks a little bit like a cheese grater to me for some reason. Like yeah, it, you know, it's sort of uh, it has a central core that's sort of pyramidal shaped, and then wire supports at the bottom that hold the bread, and the bread leans up against it. Yeah, it uh, holds four pieces of bread. Yeah, one on each side, all leaning, and then it sits on the on the heating element, and so it heats from the inside. Now, uh, that's the classic. Here's the funny thing, though, is we found versions of it, for some reason, not for sale. Other versions from well, Australia, like and New Zealand. Yeah, I was insane. Like layman's who does all these folksy things. They used to carry it, but they don't. I wrote them, and they said they didn't know when they would ever have it back. Then there's some joint offering them for $75, like, not even be, including shipping. I mean, crazy. That's more than three times the cost of an electric toaster. Yeah, you can that, get an electric toaster for like $30. That's the funny thing here. Uh, then overseas, we found like a, a richness of them for some reason being sold by retailers working out of Australia and New Zealand. I don't know why. I asked our readers and uh, one person from New Zealand wrote back and said, I don't know, we're not, you know, we use electric toasters too. But they they were sold 
websites associated with those countries were selling them at reasonable rates. However, the shipping from over there, of course, makes them unreasonable. So then we're back in the $75 range for this little piece of metal. Speaking of which, you found something called the Delta Toast. I found an interesting one. Yeah, call it's a fancy one called the Delta Toast. And it it's just, uh, uh, well, we'll have to link to all of them. It's more pricey uh, than, and a little more complex. It's made uh, especially for use in small-scale situations like boats and stuff because it folds flat and then it hangs on the wall. Now, what's weird about it is that it only does one piece at a time, but it does both sides at once, which is a real plus. And it can also put a whole sandwich in there for toasting. It, it was a beautiful design, actually. It was actually. really a beautiful design. Nice too. We, um, we pondered that one. Yeah, but it's pretty, it's more pricey. Uh, then we got a great tip um, from, for an Italian-style toaster. Uh, Called the Tostapane. Uh, Tostapane, yeah. I think. <laughs> I think so. Um, yeah, that was reader Chris, by the way. Thank yeah. you, Chris, if you're listening to this. And, uh, he, well, and he linked to a store called Fan- Fantis? Fantis? Yeah. A, a kind of an Italian kitchen gadget supplier in Philadelphia. Which was really kind of thrilling to look at. Yeah, it was, yeah there were many things in there that I wanted. And but the reason. Don't necessarily need. <laughs> don't necessarily need. But the tostapane, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, the interesting thing is that Italians, a lot of Italians don't have ovens or I guess don't have electric toasters or have small kitchens. And it's a tradition there to use this device, which is really simple. It's just a metal tray with holes in it and kind of a, a grill to make toast, but also, I guess, Italians use it to... Like grill peppers and... Even bake like potatoes. Yeah, they turn apparently. a pot upside down over it and make a potato, so you don't have to, like, turn on the oven to do a, a single thing. It's a way to improvise an oven. Yeah. That was kind of... That was the one that, that I That was the of, cheapest, too, now, of all of them. It should be said other readers suggested just making toast in a pan. Which, which is, I think we need to give some some... Space to more of a test run. Yeah, I think it's I think it's true. I mean, I and I have to admit, like when, you know, I try to think like this, I try to think, do you really need that? You know, what what can you do, do the same thing with? And if you want to talk appropriate tech, well, you know, a pan that we already have is appropriate tech. And there, and we got several comments from readers who were like, I just put it in my pan and, you know, toast both sides and it's fine. You don't need to get all yuppie and hysterical about what kind of Italian toaster you're going to get or not get, you know. And I, I totally agree that, you know, with that. You We've know, been the, trying. It should be said the Tostapane is not expensive. It's, it's no, but it's, but it is buying something, something and it, it is. is, it is accumulating another object. And we've it just been freed flat. of You can tell I'm, I'm enthusiastic about it. <laughs> yeah, Eric's, Eric really wants the toast of I'm not so sure that we need one. I, so I've been trying to toast in, a, in our cast iron pan, which is always on the stove, since then. And it works. Uh, I think cast iron is not the ideal kind of pan for this because it takes a really long time for cast iron to get hot. Then it holds the heat, which is why it's great for cooking. But for like making a quick piece of toast, it's slow. I don't like that so much. So I'm not sure. I think personally, I think we should try toasting in pans a little bit more before 
giving up and ordering the toast upon it. An- another reader suggested a fish grilling basket, which is an interesting suggestion because it actually harkens back to the first toasters, but the pre, the pre, I guess you say pre-electric and pre-gas oven toaster, which is, you know, there used to be things that were kind of toasting forks or little cages for pieces of bread. Oh, to go over a fire. Yeah, you would put over an open fire. And I thought that was an interesting suggestion because that actually is kind of the first toasting device, if it, if you will. Uh, it was something that looked like a fish grilling basket. There also are versions of all of these non-electric toasters that are camp stove toasters. And a number of readers suggested that. I think even REI has some kind of toast toaster for for a kind of probably for a propane camp grill originally, but... That could, probably could be used in the house. I was concerned that they wouldn't be durable. I saw commentary that they were there not There was durable. some debate about that. Although yeah. other other readers said that they've they've used those and they've worked fine. Mm. So that's another possibility. But those those are priced about the same as the Tostapane. Tostapane, so, exactly. Uh, yeah, um, the Tostapane we have not seen in person looked a little flimsy in the photo, but I don't know. I haven't again. I haven't seen it in mm. in person yet. Oh, and we should say that the pyramidal toasters are available. Antique ones are available everywhere, I think, used, obviously. Um, but the problem is that they are tend to be kind of rusty, uh, and I don't know. Does that matter? I don't know. Does that matter? I, because you can get them on Etsy for like 10 to $12, the old-style the old pyramidal ones previously loved. Exactly. So, Well, uh, is there a conclusion here? Are we going to go with the tostapane or are we going to grill? I guess we'll try the stovetop for a little the, bit the longer, cast iron pan maybe a different, for a while. Maybe a different pan. There's also the broiler, of course, but the broiler It isn't, seems like a lot of energy yeah. to, to yeah, fire up the broiler to make a piece of toast. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that said, shall we move on to the next topic here, which yes. is disposable cups? I understand you took a pledge this month, Kelly. I took a pledge on the blog last week um, that I wasn't going to use disposable coffee cups anymore, or actually any kind of disposable cup, any kind of disposable drink cup. I've often carried uh, a a stainless steel mug with me, uh, and I also often usually have my water bottle with me. So I don't use, I don't think I use as many disposables as some people. But I realized that I was using more disposables than I needed to. So I had to sort of give myself a, a kick. This is, this is, I think, something that happens to all of us. There's, there's a slippage between our ideals and our actions. And we can get comfortable in the way we are behaving. And if we're behaving maybe slightly better than the common denominator, then we don't think we have to do more. But I think... And not to be all like, you know, eco-martyr on you or, or to guilt anybody into doing this as well. I think we all just do what we want to do, what we need to do, what we're called to do. But I've been feeling bad about plastic and I've been feeling bad about just about this whole notion of disposability. I think that's a really awful notion, you know, disposable items, disposable people. It's just nasty. Um, and I, I don't think you know, things need to be disposable. And certainly something as as ephemeral as a, a cup of coffee shouldn't leave lasting detritus in your wake. So instead of just carrying my mug, sometimes I'm going to carry my mug 
always. And, and if I am out and I don't have my mug and someone offers me disposable coffee, I'm going to have to say no. I'm going to have to be the American who doesn't get what she wants. The second she wants it, I'll have to not have coffee. I'll have to wait till I go home. Or if I'm out at a restaurant and you know the, the drinks only come in plastic cups, I'm not getting one of their drinks. That's That's just the way it is, unless I have my cup with me and they'll fill it. So I'm going to be interacting with um, with restaurant people a lot more now, asking, you know, hey, will you fill will you fill my cup up? I think that's I don't. It feels like the right decision for me. I'm already being challenged uh, by it, you know, like kind of running into it, going, oh, oh, I took a pledge. I think it's good to take a pledge because well, it broke down, right? No, it didn't break. Yeah, well, well there was a cup of coffee, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna call you on. No, this. that's what I. That's um, <laughs> all right. Yes, the day after I made the pledge on the blog, I went to Trader Joe's, um, which is we talk about disposable. You shouldn't go there either. And um, I love getting uh, the sample cup of coffee when I go to Trader Joe's, and I completely forgot that that counts. I cannot have this, the the Dixie cup of coffee that they hand out, and I didn't even think because of these these actions are so automatic. So I I was halfway through my cup of coffee before I realized. I shouldn't have done that. But I have not slipped since. Are you going to try to use your regular cup to get those free cups of coffee? Joe's will probably think I'm filling the whole cup up and have exactly. a freak out. I might have to give up my my little Dixie cup, you know, sample of coffee that or I get when I go to Joe's. metal Dixie cup. This reminds me, <laughs> Larry Santoya, who is a local permaculture teacher here, has a whole rap that's very funny about straws. Because oh, straws. straws are completely oh. ridiculous objects. Oh, and right? they come but, in everything. And I mean, if they come in plastic, you know, all sort of pre wrapped, then I'll just leave it on the table and I hope that they, they pick that up and there's not some health law that says they have to throw off out anything that ends up on the table. But often they come in the drink. But hey, if I'm not getting those plastic cups, if I'm saying no to those, I'm not going to get any more straws either. But Larry, if I'm remembering Larry's funny, uh, rant about this. He said that if you take the straws away, then suddenly you have people who make straws. They're, you know, your glass artisanal straw that you carry with you. You have to carry your straw with you. And there are, there's bamboo well, yeah, there straws is. and metal straws right. and glass. If people, if you, I don't know who it is that can't drink a drink without a straw. I, I don't quite understand where the straw thing came from. We need to we need to look up the history of the straw at some point. It's probably a, it's probably an ancient device of some kind, but you know uh, you look kind of funny drinking from a straw. It is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> uh, the city of L.A., of course, banned plastic bags recently. So that's an example of you know the thing is if you just take this thing away, then people somehow figure it out and it's not the end of the world. People use reusable bags now, or mm -hmm. you have to buy a bag, and it seems like the same thing with. And my cell phone's ringing, which beep, it never beep, does. Beep. Uh, it seems like you could uh, just simply take the disposable cups away and the disposable plates, and somehow people would would get get with it, right? Get with the program. I don't. I, mean, I don't understand how that would work with the fast food paradigm. That it's based on disposability, essentially. Well, it's, we saw when we were on our book tour, though, there was a nice example of a community, Vashon Island, that has a rentable. 
set of oh that's for parties and yes no, no that's cool i yeah i mentioned that in the blog i maybe want to do a whole post on it but on, in vashon island some neighbors had gotten together and using a old outbuilding on somebody's land just a shed they packed the shed with lots and lots of of crockery of um plates and cups and you know flatware and trays and bowls stuff from i think from thrift stores and things that people had donated so it was like a party center and if you were going to have a group over to your house birthday party big big crowd at christmas or whatever you could go there and you could get all of the plates and stuff that you needed so you didn't have to resort to disposables or the more formal um the more formal solution of renting, uh, which people don't usually do unless it's a really nice occasion. People usually default to the disposables for big parties. And this allows people to just to, to, to bypass disposables, which I thought was a fantastic idea, something that could be replicated you know, in communities everywhere. I'm sure a lot of places have done that, actually. I mean, it wasn't, it was free. It was just, you know, it's just a a community thing, you you know, uh, honor system sort of thing. Pick it up, drop it off. Yeah, clean. It's, it's fantastic. But that that's not the. But I was saying that the it's the fast food model that doesn't doesn't work well with uh, you know reusing. Well, things. maybe I I don't know about most fast food restaurants. I did meet a restaurant owner and had this conversation with her about people bringing in their own takeaway containers and, and things like that. And she was perfectly fine with it. And in fact, it saves her money because she didn't have to, to use the styrofoam containers that normally she would use for takeout. I think um, a lot of restaurant owners probably be fine with this, mm. with reusable cups and reusable plates and takeaway containers and things like that. Now, you know, I think you mentioned you mentioning the va the well us talking about the Vashon Island uh this uh, uh, um what was it the the cup and the community plate, cuppery community, right it's a community <laughs> cuppery that, it's, it seems like a good volunteer opportunity for anyone in any institution a place of work or club or whatever to someone to volunteer to maintain the the cups and plates and all you have to do is go to any thrift store by the way the the massive saint paul saint vincent, uh, vincent, de, paul. Saint, saint vincent de paul thrift store here where we got the cups for an event that we did at the uh, natural history museum there were hundreds and hundreds of coffee cups there just lonely all for, 25 were they, cents? 25 50 cents a piece something like it's that depending on how nice the cup was but basic hotel cups like 25 cents a piece and plates and everything too so. yeah you can get all of that stuff yeah i think we've yeah that's one thing i want to do in any organizations i'm part of and so this we've sort of slipped from talking about individual action like well you know, but this is to, an individual action. it is an individual action, but i mean but instead of just like me and my coffee this is about when i go to a meeting of a club and that club traditionally you know like brings in a starbucks set or has a you know has a a coffee machine and disposable cups and you know the the god-awful creamers and the little plastic stir sticks and all that stuff you can you can put a stop to that and and bring in enough cups uh, for you know your usual meeting size, and just volunteer to wash them afterwards. It's not that hard, and and I think it's much more civilized. It's much more dignified, to, and and it tastes better. You know, to drink out of a real cup. 
This reminds me also of my quest for the breakdown chopstick. Remember this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw somewhere a Japanese-style uh, chopstick that was disassemblable. So it very you know, elegant and beautiful. Yeah, actually. so it unscrewed so it was quite short and you could carry it in your pocket very easily. Also incredibly expensive, which for is why reason, for some reason it's one of those weird things. Maybe it's changed in by import. now. Uh, I also carry I carry a spork. I have a titanium spork from camping that I've decided just should live in my bag. So I have that in my bag, which can also help me avoid having to use plastic forks and stuff when I'm out on the road. And of course, if you have your, some, some Swiss army knives and things have little forks and such in them, which is another way to, to manage the cutlery aspect of this problem. Yeah, you just have to sort of think about it a little bit and it takes just a little bit of extra effort to remember to, you know, bring the mug. Is the mug clean? Where is the mug? Just, you know, but you, it, I think it does become habitual in the same way I drag my my steel water bottle with me everywhere. I rarely forget that. And that's just automatic. So I just need to make the, um, the cup as automatic and make sure that my spork stays, you know, in position. I'm beginning to want to like design a special handbag that just holds all these, these, these necessities for me in a more organized way. Well, any conclusions on your cup situation? I don't know. I think I just want to keep in mind that the wasteful, the thoughtless, and and the environmentally disastrous are the default settings in our culture. And it's default. That's like what we're supposed to do. So, any any effort against that is a good thing. And I think we just have to keep remembering uh, to challenge ourselves a little bit, like with me in the cup, or um, I've got another one that I'm working on now. I I used to make my own shampoo bars which is fantastic because there's no packaging involved and it's inexpensive and they work. Uh, but I ran out of shampoo bars at some point and I was too lazy to make soap. And then I just fell off the edge and, and I, have, I have a bunch of shampoo and conditioner bottles in the shower, which are just completely unnecessary. You know, more plastic for the world, you know, because I'm lazy basically. So there's these little ways that we just can remember to try a little harder. So one of my... New Year's projects is going to be to make a whole new batch of shampoo soap. It's a real cool way to basically make it happen, right? To make, to just change the world and save the world. the world instantly well, you know, with you this can't, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's like you can't save the world, but you can save yourself. You, you, can, you can save your own conscience. You can say, I, I'm doing what I can. And that's all we can do, really. I mean, I think, I mean, honestly, if you want to talk plastic in a serious way, we have to talk about the third world. You know, and I can't do anything about that so much. Although, you know, we can look for social and economic justice and work for those things in any way we can. But um, but just day to day, I think it's an important symbolic action not to be wasteful. Indeed. Moving on, our last topic is a compostable Christmas. It is, by the way, it's the, uh, if you're listening to this sometime later, it's the holiday season and which is one of the reasons Kelly and I are speaking to each other because guests are are busy in the coming two weeks. But it's a it's just a week before Christmas here, and well, well, speaking of wasteful, compostable Christmas is about that too. It's about you know just trying a little harder and 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 thinking, being conscious about the choices we make when we're uh, making or buying ornaments. Like, can we make or buy ornaments that are actually 
um, can actually be returned to the earth. I, I like this idea of ephemerality, like transientness in in holiday decor, because holidays come and go and seasons come and go. So it's all about this big rotation and seasonality. And why shouldn't our decorations be seasonal and temporary too? You know, they, they look good and then they start to fade, kind of like the old, you know, every, you know, people who have uh, real Christmas trees, you know, the tree looks great. And then, you know, by the time you take it down, it's getting dry and it's time for it to go. And, you know, people do throw them in the landfills, but it could go back to the earth. Uh, and it's the same thing with anything. You can make a wreath or you can make uh, some sort of little decoration that can, um, that, you know, isn't meant to exist forever, isn't made out of indelible materials like plastic, isn't made in a factory, isn't sold in an awful big box store, but it's something that you glean from nature. So actually collecting these things becomes an exercise in nature awareness and nature appreciation and and a chance for you to calm down and and reconnect with the natural and, and with the spirit of the season. So that's that's what I was thinking about with Compostable Christmas. There's like three posts on it now. <laughs> I'm wondering if I should say more here because I feel like I've been talking about it a lot. Well, uh, but one thing is, and you, you kind of alluded to this, that the kind of plastic decor that you see in the big box store could theoretically be put into a box and stored the rest of the year. However, I've noticed looking at a lot of this stuff, a lot of it is so flimsily and poorly made, and again, not made to be fixed, that it it seems almost single use to me. It's supposed to be. I mean, they want people to buy new stuff every year. Of course. Like, you know, like, oh, that's boring. Oh, look, that's so cute. I mean, they're very good at creating things that are very cute. And you're you're walking around Target and sort of that one of those dazes you get when you go into those places and you see a basket full of little reindeer and you're just like, next thing you know, you're buying them and you don't know what happened to you, you know, but that's just how how it works. There's, I think there's things that should be kept. I mean, there's family antique, you know, uh, ornaments that or decorations that get passed on, you know, maybe they were in grandma's house and you sort of look forward to unwrapping them every year and, and having, you know, how they, they, those sorts of things invoke memories. I think like that test um, that that expert on clutter has, I can't remember her the name Japanese right now. Japanese expert. But yeah, she, but she says, you know, you pick up every every item in your house and you hold it in your hands and you ask yourself, how does this make me feel? And um, the basis of that response is whether you get rid of it or not. And I think with Christmas decor, you know, we have things that just sort of are around and we don't even know why. And then we have things that are really special to us, things the kids made, things that came from grandma, and you hold them and, and they make you feel good. You unwrap them, the newspaper from them, and you go, oh, this, you know, these are the things you should keep year after year. But like just the crap, you don't need to keep. And what I would say is that you have like that base of the precious things that you keep year to year. And then the other stuff is temporary and you bring it in from the outside. You bring in seasonal berries and I don't know, old bird's nests and really cool seed pods. And, you know, you make cookies or rock crystals, or you make paper snowflakes and paper chains and popcorn strings and things like that, that all goes on the tree. It's a gift directly from nature and when it's done, it can go out. It can literally go out into the compost pile or at a stretch into the recycling bin if it's like a paper. Or 
I like this idea best of all is to have a second season of giving and you give all of your decor to the fairies, which means you take it outside and you hang it on trees and bushes, all these little ornaments and strings and things that you've made. And you let it spend the rest of the season outside slowly decomposing. And probably by spring, they'll all be gone. But you and the fairies will appreciate it in the meanwhile. Indeed. What are some of the specific things you've done around the house here? There's a few nice well, little interventions. <laughs> interventions. I. It's not so much. I mean, I, we have just a little tree. Uh, so I don't have, you know, we're not having any big parties or anything this year. So, But there's some white sage on it. For yeah, instance. I um uh, I like white. We have it's all very regional. Like what what is what is available to you at that time of year? I mean, some places you know you're all snowed in. There's not much, and you might have to start collecting in the fall. In California, in Southern California, Christmas, there are certain things that are very, very uh, typical. One thing is the toyin berries. The toyin is a native plant with red berries, which used to be called the California holly, and it's where the name Hollywood actually comes from. Little did we know. And the berries come red at Christmas like holly berries. So our Christmas tree is covered with toy and berries and little uh, paper uh, snowflakes and paper origami shapes and these weird seed pod things. I don't even know what kind of tree they fall out of, but they're really pretty. They, they, um, they're twirled like, like ribbon. Uh, they're really, really cool. And white sage leaves, like Eric uh, mentioned, white sage is white. It's like a gray to white color, uh, which looks really good against the dark boughs of the Christmas tree. And I sugared the sage leaves to give them the look of being frosted, which is actually something that never happens here. <laughs> but it's a little bling for the tree. And that's another thing that I blogged about is sugaring, sugaring natural objects, you know, just dipping them in a little bit of egg white and then sprinkling them, sprinkling them with sugar instead of doing like glitter and glue or silver spray paint. I grew up doing a lot of Christmas crafts. I'm sure most people did where you go out and you find beautiful objects in nature, which is good. And then you, but they're not good enough the way they are. So you have to take them back to the schoolroom and, and dip them in silver spray paint and put colorful glitter all over them and then drag them home to be put on the tree, which then makes them into trash because then what are you going to do with them? So for that reason, I'm trying to encourage people to sugar instead of glitter. Now, of course, I'm looking at the tree and the bottom half is undecorated because (laughs) the cats have pulled everything off. This is our first tree since cats. Uh, We didn't have trees last two years. And so here we were like, I wasn't sure about how that was going to go. And we were fooled because for a couple of days... They left it alone. And actually, it's only one of them. It's only Buck. But Buck has an unholy fascination with this tree. And he keeps pulling ornaments off and destroying them. He shredded an origami. He, oh. So yeah, now the lower third of the tree is naked because it's just pointless to have anything on there. He also eats the pine needles and then throws them up I'll as a hobby. I'll link to it in the show notes. There's a nice compilation on the interwebs of cats destroying Christmas trees, doing flying leaps and the trees <laughs> falling over. It's very nice. And pulling ornaments, not just just pulling entire trees. strings of lights off. I have a, a, a memory from when I was really little of our cat climbing to the very top of the Christmas tree. It was exactly. That often doesn't end well. <laughs> and teetering up there. <laughs> Any other thoughts on the natural Christmas products or natural Christmas decor? 
No, I think I've covered. If anybody's curious about it, there's um, we've started a uh, a Pinterest board on it. I have a big list on the blog. What is our? Is we root simple Pinterest? I believe so. We'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah, it's your your face is on it, so you look like you're really into Christmas ornaments because I did it under your account. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, the most Christmassy ornament guy in the world. Exactly. Well, speaking of Christmas, the the podcast appears every Wednesday. Uh, however, next Wednesday is Christmas Eve, so we're going to take the week off, and we will be back a week later. And we have a bunch of guests lined up for the new year that I'm looking forward to. There's been some requests for beekeeping information, so we'll have oh, bees. I, we're going to have Kirk Anderson on. And maybe some other beekeepers, too. And I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, but we might have a really cool cat veterinarian on if we can get that worked out. So that'll be very exciting. People can send in their cat questions. Also, Christopher Nyergesh, too. Who taught us how to forage. We'll have him on, hopefully, in the coming year. Yeah. Well, anything else, Kelly? Well, I want to wish everybody happy holidays, whatever kind of winter holiday you celebrate. I hope it is special, and I hope you are uh, surrounded by your friends and family, and that you don't go too crazy because you're surrounded by your friends and family. (laughs) And uh, I just wish you the very best. I do too. Well, to leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening.